gracious God and Father, you are worthy of all praise, all honor, and the whole of our devotion. Would you comfort your people in the hearing of your word? Would you cause faith to grow and uh, devotion to deepen? We bow our hearts before you, remembering that we can come before you. Indeed, you welcome us as sons and daughters before you. Only through faith in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Saviour and our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I think it was about 18 months ago, a friend, Brad, uh, and I took our boys caving in the, it's called the Cork Bay Caves in Cape Town, in the southern part of the peninsula. Caving is when you, you walk or climb up the mountain into a cave and then you go exploring uh, inside through the tunnels. Uh, of course, once you've gone for more than a few meters, you've turned one or two corners, it's pitch dark. You can't see a thing. So you need to have a headlamp uh, and you need to follow known pathways or, or be with somebody who knows where they're going, which was my plan, stay close to Brad, who knows what he's doing. And uh, there was this one section in the cave where for about probably five meters, six meters, something like that, we had to lie down on our tummies and kind of worm our way through a tunnel. And um, it was very narrow and <laughs> very low. Couldn't lift your head up. Uh, you know, you had to kind of tilt your head and squint a bit. You couldn't uh, look all the way up. Now, now Brad is, I would say, uh, approximately, say, four inches wide. And uh, as are both of his boys. <laughs> and my son at the time was not much more. Now, um, I'm not four inches wide. Um, so everyone else went through first, and I followed afterwards, lamp on my head, inching my way along. It was so tight, <laughs> I tell you. I couldn't actually, everyone else was kind of crawling you know, like this. I couldn't do that. I had to get my arm one out in front, and it was tight. Now, I'm mildly claustrophobic. <laughs> so this tunnel was not fun. I remember the growing sense of panic. And uh, a little way in, I actually had to stop. Uh, I was very keen to get out of the tunnel into the open cave on the other side. Even, even the cave itself was not great fun, but at least better than this tunnel. But I knew that if I rushed, I would uh, lose my nerve. I would I'd probably panic and I'd probably do something silly and get stuck. I actually had to stop and breathe and pray and just take a minute. And uh, the others with me knew that I struggled with this, so they were patiently waiting and just talking to me calmly. Now, you know the end of the story. I'm here today, so obviously I, I made it out. But there were moments in the tunnel where it was a real battle, a real battle, to not let fear and panic take hold. And if any of you planned a holiday to Cape Town and suggested that you might want to go caving, I'd say, well, if you're more than four inches wide, maybe think twice about the corporate tunnels. But you can't always avoid life's caves. In fact, not only can you not avoid them, but sometimes God himself will lead you into them. And you and I need to know what to do when we are in the cave. So David wrote this psalm, this masculine, he calls it. That's a psalm of instruction, or more literally, a psalm to make you wise for the cave days of life. Now, we don't have home groups this coming week because we're having a, a whole church prayer meeting on Wednesday night. 
so we won't have a chance to go through the psalms in our, this psalm in our home group. So I'd encourage you to spend some time reading, meditating on it, thinking it through yourself. There's much in here, uh, but this afternoon I want to make, I think, just three points. First, there will be days in the cave. Second, when you are in the cave, there are some true things you need to know. And third, when you are in the cave, you need to do something with those truths. So first, there will be days in the cave. Now David, um, who wrote the psalm, became king of Israel, probably round about the year 1000 BC. But, uh, and he was a great king, uh, Israel's greatest. But before that, he was just a boy, happily tending his father's sheep out in the hills. And in one sense, he was nothing special, but he loved God. In fact, God himself says he chose David because he was a man after his own heart. David loved God. In one of his Psalms, David wrote, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You are all I want. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David loved God with his whole heart. And he wasn't content just to sing to God out in the hills. He was jealous for God's honor. So, for example, when the Philistine army threatened Israel and their champion warrior Goliath taunted King Saul, who was the the king that David replaced, David exclaimed, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David was jealous for God's honor. And later in his life, David returned the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence with his people, and and the Philistines had captured in a previous battle, he got it back and he returned it to Jerusalem and he wanted to build a temple there to house it. In other words, David wanted all of life to be centered on God. Having the ark at the center of the nation meant he wanted devotion to God and to God's ways to fill and to shape the whole of life, both public and private. So you might think that because David loved God, and he wanted God to be honored and glorified in all of life, in private and in public, you might think God would have arranged a smooth ride for him, that he would make it all work out nice and easy. Happy shepherd boy one day, defeater of giants the next, leader of Israel's armies, an uncontested path to the throne, and he lived happily ever after, right? Well, wrong. What actually happened was that King Saul who reigned before David, became insanely jealous of him and tried to kill him. David had to jump out the way when Saul tried to impale him with a spear. He then had to escape death again by being let down from a window by his wife. After that, he was forced to flee into the night to get away from the soldiers who had been dispatched to capture and kill him. For a time, he hid out in the fields surrounding Jerusalem and eventually suffered the humiliation of having to seek refuge in the city of Gath, the hometown of his old enemy Goliath. And now he's hiding in a cave while King Saul and 3,000 of his warriors hunt him. Friends, there will be cave days in life. There will be days in the dark, days when you feel trapped, days when you feel alone, days when you feel just like David did. My spirit grows faint within me, verse 3. Your translation might say perplexed or overwhelmed. 
times, sometimes long times, when your soul is just worn out, when you feel emotionally exhausted, you just can't carry on. Your spirit grows faint. It might be, sometimes, your own sin or foolishness that has you in the cave. It might be just the reality of things gone wrong in a fallen world. But sometimes it will be faithfulness to God and to His ways, actually trying your best to live a God-honoring life, as David was doing, that will have you in the cave. And I'll bet that probably all of those will be true at some time or another in your life. Maybe, like David, you look around and see no one to help. There's no one at my right hand, he says in verse 4. At his right hand could mean two things. It could mean he had no defense counselor. There's no one who will argue his case or defend him against King Saul's false accusations and irrational hatred. There is another another possibility, though. In the ancient world, a man held his shield in his left hand and his friend stood on his right to protect him in the battle. But David stands alone. He looks to his right, hoping for a defender, a friend who will stand with him in the battle. But there's no one there. No defender, no friend, no one to comfort or encourage, no one who cares for his soul. Now friends, just as there will be seasons in the sunshine, so too there will be days in the cave. And when you've done your best to be faithful to God, to follow Jesus as a faithful disciple, when with all your heart you want to live a Christ-centered life that shows others how good and wonderful a Savior He is, still, there will be days in the cave. And when you are in the cave, you need to know some things. First, God is there. See in verse 2, David says, I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. Before him. Before God. Even in the darkness of the cave, David was conscious of being in the presence of God. He knew God was with him. He knew God was there. Friends, it's one thing to know God is with you while we're together here in worship. And David longs for that too. He longs to be with God's people. See verse 7. He wants to praise God together with God's people. But he's there in the cave too. There is no place where he is not God. In another psalm, David praised God saying, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the winds of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And I wonder if he remembered the cave as he wrote this next part. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Friends, look at verse 4. When you look to your side and see no one to defend you, no one who will argue your case, no friend who will stand with you, when no refuge among men remains to you and it feels like no one cares for your soul, 
He is there. He is there. This is the first thing you need to know in the cave. God is there. And second, God is able to deliver you. When your spirit grows faint within you, verse 3, when your spirit is so worn out, so drained, so tired, when you've turned your troubles over 10,000 times in your mind and you just can't see a way out, when the situation presses in on your soul and you feel trapped, never mind being able to see a way out of the situation, you barely even have the emotional energy left to imagine being out of the cave. He knows your way. Not just a way, friends. God knows your way. He knows exactly how he will lead you forward, out of the dark cave and back into the clear daylight. He watches over your way. The second thing you need to know in the cave, God is sovereign. He is able to deliver deliver you. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, psalmist tells us. So powerful is the Lord that all the stars of all the galaxies in all the universe were made by the breath of his mouth. Just a word. Go outside on a dark night and look long at the stars and remember who your God is. He is all-powerful. He is the omnipotent God. When in his his goodness he decides the time is right to change your circumstances, he can do so in a heartbeat. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in, in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Friends, in the cave days of your life, you need to know God is able to deliver you. And third, God will fulfill his purposes in you. Look at verse 7. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Now remember, David knew that the Lord had chosen him to become king. Remember the state of the nation of Israel. Israel had endured 400 years in slavery in Egypt, spent 40 years wandering in the desert of the Sinai Peninsula under Moses' leadership, finally entered the promised land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, and had actually largely driven out their enemies and settled the land, not entirely, but largely. But then the nation fell apart. Under a series of tribal warlords called Judges, The nation descended into apostasy, civil war, and it fragmented. They called for a king and got Saul, insecure, unfaithful Saul, who is now hunting David to the death. But what was David's heart? David wanted a united nation under God. David wanted to be loved, sorry, wanted God to be loved and worshipped, and all of life to be centered on the reality of God's covenant with his people. How do we know this? Well, we know it both from how David responded to the news of Saul's death, and from what he actually did when he became king. David had the man who assisted Saul in his suicide executed, saying, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? 
and he led the nation in a great lament for the fallen king. You see, David to David, Saul was not just a man gone mad with power. He was the Lord's anointed, the Lord's chosen. He was anointed by God to unite Israel, settle the land and bring peace to its borders. David's concern was for the Lord's purposes for Israel to be realized. And the king was in the workings of God's covenant with Israel under the uh, under the old covenant. The king was God's agent. The fortunes of Israel rose and fell with the king. Not with his military prowess primarily, but primarily with his devotion to God. Remember why God had chosen David to be king? Because he was a man after his own heart. And friends, it's not difficult to understand this. Imagine that all or most of the most influential leaders of this country were wholeheartedly devoted disciples of Jesus. Disciples who love God and want nothing more than that God be glorified in their lives, privately and in all they do publicly for the good of the country. Would we, as citizens of this country, would we be glad of their leadership? Of course we would. So in verse 7, when David says, Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name, then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. He's praying not just for his own personal happiness. The righteous will gather about me. He's praying that God's people will rejoice in the fulfillment of his desires for a God-centered life, for a God-ordered nation. He's praying that all who love the Lord, all who want to see God at the center of all of life, would see their hopes and their desires come to pass in his reign as God's chosen king, as he would do good for the nation. He's looking ahead to the fulfillment of God's purposes in and through him, as a king wholly devoted to the glory of God and the good of God's people. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord will fulfill his purposes in and through you. Probably none of us in this room will ever become king of Israel. In fact, none of us know what God's purposes for us are in quite so specific a way as David did. You see, the prophet Samuel had told him God had chosen him as king. And that was how God worked in times of the Old Covenant. But most people of ancient Israel didn't have prophets knocking on their door after breakfast, telling them that they'd been chosen by God to be a goat herd or a baker or an accountant or a computer programmer. Well, in fact, probably very few ancient Israelites were computer programmers. <laughs> the point is not the specifics of God's purposes in detail. That wasn't David's confidence. It was that God would be faithful to his covenant. In his case, he knew the specifics. We don't. That's irrelevant. God knows his plans and purposes for you. And he will complete what he has begun in you. Whatever will best serve his glory and your spiritual good, he will accomplish. There will be times in life when being faithful to God, when living for God's honor will put you in a cave. And when you're in the cave, you need to know God is there. God is able to deliver you. And God will fulfill his purposes in and through you. But it isn't enough just to know these things. You also need to do something with them. 
So what is it? What do you need to do with these truths in the cave days? You need to fight. Look at David's prayer. Verse 1, I cry aloud, I lift up my voice. Verse 2, I pour out my complaint. Verse 5, I cry to you, Lord. Verse 6, listen to my cry. I am in desperate need. Rescue me. Verse 7, set me free. This is fighting prayer, friends. This is not polite tiptoeing prayer. Oh dear, most holy and uplifted one, I do beg your pardon. So sorry to disturb you. I seem to be in a spot of bother. One doesn't want to complain, but if it's not too much trouble, I wonder if you might be able to lend a little assistance at a time convenient for you, of course. No. Help me, God. Help me. I'm finished. I can't do this. They're too strong for me. Deliver me. Vindicate me. Bring me out of this cave, back to where I belong. Help me, God. Now. There are times in life for beautiful ballerina prayers. But the cave is for ugly heavyweight boxer prayers. Cave prayers are whole-souled, gut-wrenching outpourings of all that is within to him who sits on the throne, who is with you, who is able to deliver you, who will achieve his purposes in and through you. Friend, I wonder if you are in a cave. Is your spirit fainting within you? Are you overwhelmed, confused? Is your soul assailed by doubt and darkness? You've been trying your best to live in a God-honoring way as a faithful disciple of Jesus. But a certain situation in your life feels like a prison, like a cage, pressing in on you from which you just cannot figure out how to get free. Fight. Don't give up. Don't yield to despair. The lie that it will always be this way is just that. It's a lie. The truth is, God is with you. God is able to deliver you, to make this right. God will fulfill his purposes in and through you. And what is the reward? What does victory in this ugly heavyweight boxer battle in the cave look like? Well, remember first what the fight looks like. I cry aloud, I lift up my voice, I pour out my complaint, I cry to you, Lord. Listen to my cry, I am desperate, rescue me, set me free. Now look with me at verse 5. There's a very subtle, very beautiful change. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. I say. The fighting, the crying out, the lifted voice, pouring out troubles, pleading for rescue, softens to a gentle, faith-filled, I say. The fainting spirit, overwhelmed, abandoned, a breath away from giving in to despair under the relentless darkness of the cave, is at rest. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Not, you have provided me with a refuge, 
No. You, the God who is here with me, the God who is able to deliver me, the God who will fulfill his purposes in and through me, you, my God, are my refuge. You, my God, are my portion in this life. You are all I want. You are all I need, today and forever. We do not pour out our troubles to God so that He can see them, but so that we can see Him. Pray is not for His information, but for our relief. Friends, I can't close without saying just one last thing. Before you can know God as your refuge in the cave days, you need to know and trust God as your refuge from Himself. You know in your heart, you know in your knower that God is real, that He is holy and righteous and just, and you know that you are not, that you do not and cannot ever deserve His kindness and love. You know that judgment is coming. Today, right now, God would be your refuge from himself, from his own just judgment. God himself, in the person of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, is your refuge. He would be the one to shield you, to hide you, to cover you by the blood of Jesus, given on the cross for your sin and for mine. All you need to do is trust in him. Put all your trust in God himself through Jesus to save you, to be your refuge. And just as it was for David, you will know God not only as your refuge, but as your portion. It is something wonderful to have God for your refuge. It is everything to have him for your portion. No greater thing is possible. No greater gift could be imagined, let alone given, than for God himself to say to you, I am your portion. If that's you, my friend, if you've not known Jesus as your refuge, if you've not known God himself as your portion, as your portion, I implore you now, in the name of my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God. Come to Jesus, who will be your refuge, and to the Father who will be your portion today and forever. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Our gracious God and Father, you are our refuge. You have saved us from our sin. You have saved us from the judgment to come. You are our refuge when we are in the cave. You are our refuge in the days of darkness. You are our portion. You are all we want. You are all we need. You are all we could ever want or need. Today, tomorrow, forever. Father, I pray you would take these words and press them home into the hearts of those who need your comfort right now. And for any who have not known Jesus as refuge, who have not known you, the great Father, 
as their portion. I pray right now, Father, you would be at work in their hearts to draw them to saving faith in Christ.